Maintaining balance in an unbalanced world is impossible to do alone. Christians who cut themselves off from the church or go at life with a Lone Ranger mentality lose their balance. They're tossed about in an unbalanced world of moral relativism, cultural relativism, behaviorism, and situation ethics. Some are hypocrites. Their heads are filled with Bible knowledge, but their lives are a mess. Others are blind. They have no biblical foundation and are living for a relativistic Jesus. Thus, it is of the utmost importance that we as believers make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Let's take our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 again and verse 3. Now previously we've looked at verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1 we noted how to strike a balance by studying the Scriptures and by suffering for Christ. And then we've also considered verse 2. And we've considered how to acquire the balance for an unbalanced world. And that comes by practicing humility, by practicing gentleness, and by practicing patience, and by practicing love. Now, we want to maintain that balance. Now that we've achieved the balance, we've struck the balance, we've acquired the balance, now we want to maintain it. And that's where Ephesians 4 verse 3 comes in. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The term preserve, tereo, means to maintain. Maintaining a balanced life requires persevering or maintaining the unity of the Spirit. Maintaining balance is not easy. It's going to take work. You're going to have to work at it. You can't just expect it to happen. That verb there in Ephesians 4.3, being diligent, spadazo, one of my favorite words, spadazo, it means make every effort to fulfill an obligation. Do everything you have to do to keep that obligation. Marcus Barth says it is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. We, can, we, we, we can't even begin to imagine the sense of urgency that spadazo, that being diligent, implies. Now in John 17, 20-21, the unity of the Spirit was the very unity that Christ prayed for before going to the cross. He said, Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit requires us to make every effort in four particular areas. First, we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit by making every effort to resolve conflict. Second, we, we have to maintain the unity of the Spirit by making every effort to persevere in reconciliation. Third, we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit by making every effort to focus on orthodoxy. And then finally, we need to maintain the unity of the Spirit by making every effort to build up the body of Christ. So let's begin again with verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 4. And see here that if we're going to maintain the balance, we've got to make every effort to resolve conflict. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, that verb, being diligent, spodazo, it's, in, it's, in, it's, in, it's emphatic in the Greek text, meaning... We can render it this way, make every effort or spare no effort in preserving the unity of the Spirit. 
We're to spare no effort in striving to forgive. We should spare no effort in striving to reconcile with those who have wronged us. Instead of fighting one another, we're to strive for peace within the body of Christ. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, my friends, you need to take every possible step to pursue peace with others. Do you do that? Look at yourself. Consider your ways. Do you make every effort to strive for peace with one another? Or are you constantly nitpicking and finding fault and criticizing? That's not the way of the Lord. That word pursue, daako, is means to go after something with earnestness or with diligence. Listen, friends, if peace is not achieved, it should only be because the other person did not want to seek peace. You have to make every effort to make that peace. Sometimes that involves coming alongside those that are embroiled in conflict and laboring to help them resolve the issue. For example, in Philippians 4, 2-3, Paul said, I urge Uodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These two ladies were having a conflict. They couldn't resolve it. Paul had to get involved. And, and urge them. And then he urged his true companion to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow laborers. You see, friends, Scripture mandates that we fight against sin. Scripture mandates that we fight against false doctrine. Scripture mandates that we fight against practices that corrupt the church. The problem is, and this is heartbreaking, most fights or conflicts within the church have nothing to do with sin, false doctrine, or corruption. More and more we're quarreling over issues that are frankly unbiblical. And I'm going to tell you that if you're quarreling with another Christian, more than likely it's a sign of sin. The sin of selfishness or the sin of lust. Either in your life or the life of the one who's quarreling with you. Notice James 4, 1 to 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you can spend it on your pleasures. This is not God's design here, folks. To quarrel or, co or have conflict in the church is not God's design. 2 Corinthians 12.20, I am afraid that perhaps when I come and may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. Perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, arrogance, or disturbances. Unresolved anger or strife, jealousy, dispute, slander, all that does is provide a foothold for the devil. And that's why Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Because I'm going to tell you, my friends, what you're doing is damaging the cause of Christ before the world. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35. How about it? Do you have love for one another? Or are your relationships with fellow believers full of strife and jealousy and bitterness and anger and criticism and on and on we can go.
We've got to make every effort to resolve conflict. I challenge you, resolve conflict. Again, coming back to Ephesians 4 and verse 3, we see that not only do we maintain balance by resolving conflict, but we must make every effort to persevere in reconciliation. Again, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That verb, being diligent, is a present tense participle indicating its continuous ongoing effort. It indicates that we must persevere when seeking to reconcile with those who have wronged us or done wrong. When Jesus was asked by the disciples, how many times should we forgive? He said 490 times in Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Now the idea was not that you sit here and count, well, well, listen, I've forgiven you 490 times, this is the 491st time you're not getting forgiven. No, that's not what his point was. His point was you need to be ready to forgive no matter how many times someone has sinned against you and repented. If they repent, you forgive them again and again and again. Our forgiveness must be without end. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, as just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13, bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Unending forgiveness, folks, requires perseverance. You have to be steadfast to determine, I'm going to do this even though it's difficult. It's not going to be comfortable. But if we persevere through it, we will, we will reap the harvest of reconciliation. Galatians 6 and verse 9. Let's not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Now I love Galatians 6 because Galatians 6 provides us with three steps to, to facilitate reconciliation or to perform what we call a ministry of restoration. We pick them up, we hold them up, we build them up. The first step is there in verse 1 of Galatians 6. If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. So if someone is caught in a fault, a trespass, that means they've stumbled or fallen into sin. They've been caught in it. That is, they've been taken, overtaken by it. They were caught off guard. They fell into the sin. Sin crept in. They fell. We are to seek to restore them. That word restore there, katartizo, means to set a bone to mend a net. We're returning them to their former condition. But we're to do it in the spirit of what? Of gentleness. In other words, if you're working to reconcile someone, you need to do it with humility. Because you know what? That could be you. You could be that, in that very same condition someday. The second step is we've got to hold them up as they struggle to overcome the sin that they've committed. Galatians 6 and verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a burden here, the, the word burden, baros, refers to an area of spiritual weakness. It's an area where the temptation is going to strike. And you know what? When you're, when you're trying to restore or reconcile with somebody, it's not easy because the weakness, the weak area is still there. And if we leave them to themselves, guess what? They're going to go right back to the same sin. So you've got to come alongside and help them to be victorious, lest they fall again and again. This is going to take accountability. And accountability is not just quoting a verse. Accountability is taking a call, praying with them, developing a plan, to, and helping them execute the plan to overcome temptation. 
And when we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? To love one another, John 13, 34. The third step, verse 6 of Galatians. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. The third step is build them up so they can be restored. Use the word of God to admonish, to exhort, to encourage them back to their former standing. And when you do so, they will be able to share koinonia, communion, the same term comes from that, fellowship, same term. They can share, they can fellowship in the blessings of God. But it's going to take work. It takes effort. You know, by and large, uh, we get wronged and we're done. We're done. But yet the Bible says we are to pursue reconciliation. Now, if they don't want reconciliation, you can't force that on them. But again, we should make every effort to preserve uh, the unity of the Spirit by resolving conflict and by persevering in reconciliation. Now let's move on to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you also are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This brings us to the third area we need to address. And that is we maintain the balance, we maintain the unity of the spirit by making every effort to focus on orthodoxy. We must focus on sound doctrine or orthodoxy. You see, knowing and understanding God's word is key to producing biblical convictions and standards. If you don't have convictions and you don't have standards that are biblical, listen, the world is going to devour you. You'll never find balance. You'll never maintain balance. You cannot have a conviction or standard that is not founded on the precept and principle of Scripture. I know a lot of quote-unquote Christians have all kinds of convictions and all kinds of standards. You need to ask yourself, are they biblical? Well, my pastor said, wait a minute, there, you, made, you made a mistake. Okay? What does the Bible say? Now, I'm not saying the pastor can't point you to the truth of Scripture, but when your default is, well, I'm doing this because the pastor told me to do it, you need to re-examine that. I'm doing it because this is what the Bible says. Well, this is what the, the Bible says according to the pastor. Now, it still doesn't cut it. You need to be convinced from Scripture. This is what it says. And that means not just picking one verse out of Scripture and, uh, and say, well, this is I'm applying it to this. No. You need to make sure that when you pull those verses from Scripture, that contextually they fit the issue. Okay. You know, I'm sure you've all heard the illustration of the guy who, you know, oh, Lord, what should I do? Well, I'm going to find a verse of Scripture to tell me what to do. So, you know, he just threw open the page of Scripture and he put his finger on a verse and it said Judas went out and hung himself. He scratched his head and said, well, that don't sound right. So what am I going to do? Well, he said, I'll do it again. He went and found another verse. Found the verse that said, what thou doest, do quickly. Now, that is no way to form a decision that's no way to determine God's will. That's no way to form a conviction or a standard. Yet so many Christians today have standards and convictions that they, that they, quote, they have, quote, Bible verses for. But when you actually look at the verse of Scripture in its biblical context, it has nothing to do with the situation. So we have to base them on the precepts and principles of Scripture. Now, a precept is a clear command of Scripture that governs your actions. We typically find these with the phrases, thus says the Lord, or thou shalt do this, or thou shalt not do that. 
principles come from uh, examples or from doctrines, from teachings. We derive principles that are found in various narratives, wisdom literature, prophetic announcements of Scripture. And as we study these precepts and principles, we've got to rely upon the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. Allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate us so that we can develop a conviction or, a, or an ethical stand. Friends, remember, God's Word does not change. And the Holy Spirit always leads into truth. Therefore, you know what that means? That means that, that believers should, have a, should share a collective set of convictions. Now, what happens when you put a bunch of believers in a room and they all have a bunch of convictions, but they don't? the convictions are different? Well, the first thing that's got to tell you is somewhere the Holy Spirit's missing in action. Okay? Now, I'm not saying there's not going to be differences of opinion. There are going to be. But again, we don't base our convictions on biases. We don't, we don't base them on perspectives. We don't base them on our experiences. Yet I think a lot of times as Christians, we do form our convictions on our biases or, or our experiences. Well, I've always done it that way. Well, just because you've always done it that way doesn't make it right or wrong. Okay? Again, if the Holy Spirit leads into all truth and we're studying the Scripture from a literal perspective, and we're relying on the Holy Spirit, there should be, if the Holy Spirit's at work, and we're submitting to the leading of the Holy Spirit, there should be a shared set of convictions. Now, here in Ephesians, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, Paul provides seven convictions that should unite believers. So, at the foundation level, we ought to agree on these seven things. Number one, he says there is one body. This refers to the body of Christ. We would call the body of Christ the universal church. It's an organism composed of all believers that have been saved between Pentecost and the rapture. We are one in Christ. Yet here's the uniqueness of the body of Christ. Though we are one, there's still diversity within the unity. As Romans tells us, we, there are many members in one body. All the members don't have the same function. Okay? Look at your body. Stand in the mirror and look at your body. You've got two hands, two feet, two legs, two arms, one head, one brain, two ears, one mouth. I will say nothing more about that. But nonetheless, you are one body, but you have different parts of your body that all function. Your feet don't work like your hands. Your hands don't work like your arms. Your arms don't work like your ears. Your ears don't work like your mouth, and so on and so forth. And so when we look around at at one another, at Christians, we have to understand, they're not going to operate the same way you operate. You might be an arm. They might be a hand. Somebody else might be a foot. Everybody has their own role to play, but we're still one body, because, and we're in Christ. You can also look up 1 Corinthians 12, 12 sometime. And, and because we're members of the body of Christ, I want you to understand, every one of you are indispensable to that body. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 17, the body is not one member, it's many. If the foot says, I'm not the hand, I'm not a part of the body, you know, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Every member of the body, whatever part you are, you're indispensable. You might be a hand, you might be a feet, you might be an arm, you might be legs, but God has placed you where he wants you to be 
in that body. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body as He desires. And folks, because there's diversity within this unity, that's why we need the humility, the gentleness, the patience, and the love. We've got a function for the good of the body. If the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I have no need of you. 1 Corinthians 12, 19, 21. You know, the body is made up of both weak and strong members. 1 Corinthians 12, 22 to 24. It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weak are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable. On these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks. You know, there has to be both strong and weak, rich and poor. There has to be a, 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 a variety of people. And, 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 you know, being part of the church shouldn't matter whether you're rich or poor or weak or strong. But if you are poor, then the rich have a responsibility to come alongside and help. And if you are weak, the strong have a responsibility to come alongside you and help. And in doing so, it limits the division in the body because the body is being cared for. There is to be no division in the body. All members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. 1 Corinthians 12, 25-26. Now I want to make sure before we leave this thought... Do not confuse unity with uniformity, okay? Unity is, is things, different things working in common. Uniformity is enforcing man-made standards and trying to make everybody the same. That's not what the church is, okay? He goes on to say there's also one body, there's one spirit. There's one spirit. Now that spirit is the Holy Spirit. And we were, on the day of our salvation, we were baptized into that one spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. We were all baptized into one body by one spirit. Regardless if we were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, we were all placed into that union with Christ. And again, as I said, this occurs at the moment of salvation. At that moment, the Holy Spirit cleanses you, regenerates you, and seals you. Titus 3, 5, He seals you, not on your own righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. I want to make sure that you understand there's no justification biblically for a second blessing experience. Okay? In other words, what I'm talking about is people who want to believe, well, you know, you get saved and then you're later baptized with the Holy Spirit. No. Look at the church of Corinth. The entire church of Corinth was saved and baptized in the Spirit, including the spiritually immature. Okay? He writes in 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Brethren, I can't speak to any of you as spiritual men, but as to infants in Christ. But they're all baptized in the Spirit. There's not two types of believers, folks. There's not some believers baptized by the Holy Spirit and those not baptized by the Holy Spirit. All are baptized by the Spirit. The moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your biological sex, regardless of your economic status, you're all one in Christ. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 27 to 28. 
So there's one body, one spirit, there's one hope. That word hope, elpis, is a desire that will be fulfilled. What's our hope? What's our desire? Our desire is confidence that God will keep his promises regardless of outward appearances. Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. It's that confident expectation that God is going to do a good work, the work of redemption, and he, that, that he began in you at the day of salvation. Your hope is he's going to complete it on the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the result of this hope, guess what? Here's something else that comes with your hope. You have an imperishable, undefiled inheritance waiting for you in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3-4. We've been born again to a living hope to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. This hope that you have is a result of the Holy Spirit's baptismal ministry. That moment when the Holy Spirit indwells you. He took up permanent residence within you. John 14, 17. He abides with you and will be in you. We call this the sealing of the Holy Spirit. He places His mark on you. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, because the Holy Spirit has done a work, that hope you have cannot be taken away. That inheritance cannot be taken away from you. He indwells you. He seals you. He acts as a down payment or a verification that in the one day in the future, your redemption is going to be made complete. You're going to be ushered into heaven. You're going to be glorified. You're going to be transformed. And then you're going to receive your inheritance. There's also not just one body and one baptism and one hope. There's one Lord. 400, or 747 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord. Acts 10.36 declares that Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. Not some, all. There's no salvation apart from the Lordship of Christ. Luke 2.11 For today in the city of David, there's born, been born for you a Savior who is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. Yes, He's Savior. Yes, He's Lord. Two different offices. But my friends, you cannot separate those offices. You can't say, well, he's my Savior now and later he'll be my Lord. It's a package deal. 1 Corinthians 1.13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Again, Christ has not been divided. You can't divide Christ. You cannot receive Jesus as your Savior and reject him as your Lord. A.W. Tozer said, the Lord will not save those whom he cannot command. He will not divide his offices. You cannot believe on a half Christ. We take him for what he is, the anointing Savior and Lord who is King of kings and Lord of all lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that he can also guide and control our lives. Don't fall for this idea that I'm going to make him the Lord of my life. Folks, I got news for you. He's already the Lord of your life. What you got to do is submit to him, but you don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. The moment you are saved, you repent of your sins, you placed your faith in the gospel, and you acknowledge the lordship of Christ. One of my favorite verses, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God is raised from the dead, and you will be saved. Listen, you cannot be saved if you don't confess him as Lord, Romans 10.9. Also, there's only one 
one baptism and, and one uh, body and one hope and one Lord, there's one faith. What is this faith? It's the body of doctrine that we call orthodoxy. That, that as Jude tells us, we are to earnestly contend for. We're to fight for. We're to wage for. That's an imperative, by the way. We don't have a choice about it. We must fight for it. Now let me just briefly overview the faith once delivered. That includes, first, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. It involves the belief that God is the creator of all things. It, it includes the triunity of the Godhead, that there's th three persons, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. It includes the deity of Jesus. It includes the virgin's birth of Jesus. It includes the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for sin. It, it, it includes the blood atonement. It includes the bodily resurrection. It includes the visible return of Christ at the rapture and his return. Those uh, issues there, those doctrines, are part of the faith once delivered. There's also one baptism. When he talks about one baptism there in Ephesians, he's talking about there's a public identification with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the outward confession of sin, of the inward, re, or excuse me, it's the out, it is the outward confession of an inward reality regarding saving faith. Okay? Outward baptism is only initiated after we've repented and believed. But, and it's a command. Be baptized. What must I do to be saved? Well, repent and believe the gospel. Now what do I do? Go get baptized. In fact, Frederick Bruce says the idea of an unbaptized Christian is simply not entertained in the New Testament. You see, baptism is like a wedding ring, okay? It's a public testimony that you're a spouse to Christ. So if you haven't obeyed that command, I would encourage you to do so. There's one God and Father. One God and Father. And what that simply means is this, and I'm not going to belabor that, I can preach a whole message on the oneness of God, but it means He is one. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, share the same essence and same attributes. There's a unity within the Godhead. Think of it this way. God's nature is undividable. Okay? He's one times one times one. Guess what? He's still one. Okay? They act independently. He's always the Father. He's always the Son. He's always the Holy Spirit. But they always act independently. Okay? We call this the triunity or the trinity. Finally, as we bring this down to a close, our sermon here on maintaining balance in an unbalanced world, there's one more area that we must address, and that is that we must make every effort to build up the body of Christ. Make every effort to build up the body of Christ. Again, first we've got to resolve conflict where it's there. We've got to persevere in reconciliation. We've got to focus on orthodoxy. And finally, we need to make every effort to build up the body of Christ. Just let me read Ephesians 4, 7 to 13. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also has descended into the lower parts of the earth? Who descended is himself, he who descended is himself. Also, 
He who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, 7-13. Now, when we talk about this gift of Christ, it is not the gift of the Holy Spirit. Two different gifts. Gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to every believer at the moment of salvation. The gift of Christ was given by Christ to the church after he resurrected. Okay, so he first ascended into the pit, then he resurrected, and this is a murky doctrine to get into, but I'm just going to briefly overview it. I've covered it in other sermons. I'll probably cover it in more. After he resurrects on the third day, and he tells Mary, touch me now, now you get ascended, there's an immediate ascension into heaven. He's got to take the, uh, the soul and spirits of the uh, believers of paradise, Abraham's bosom, and present them to his Father in heaven. That that time is when he gives the four, these four gifts, the, the four offices, if you will, the office of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teachers for the purpose of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, okay? Now, understand that you don't get the gift of apostle. You don't get the gift of prophet. You don't get the gift of evangelist. You don't get the gift of pastor teacher. You're gifted in other areas, and you may be called by God to serve in that office. If you're called to be a pastor teacher, then as you use that office, you are a gift to the church, okay? Now, apostles, of course, right away people are going to say, well, apostles and prophets are done with. And yes, in the technical sense of the 12 apostles, yes, they have ceased. Uh, in, in the sense of prophets as those who prophesy future events or revelation, yes, that has ceased. But there's nothing in this text to indicate he's strictly speaking of that. In fact, the term apostle here is simply one who is sent out as a messenger. We would think of this as a missionary. In fact, in the New Testament, besides the twelve, we have Barnabas, Andronicus, Junia, Titus, James, the brother of Jesus, Epaphroditus, and Silas, who are all called apostles. So, you know, if it makes you feel better, you can call them missionaries. He's given, he's given, he's gifted missionaries to the church to build up the church. Okay. Then we have prophets. The word simply means one who tells forth or preaches God's word. Okay. Uh, this would be somebody who edifies or exhorts, strengthens, comforts believers with the Word of God. Again, there's no evidence here that the, these people are foretelling the future. They're simply telling forth the Word of God. And, you know, this could be a itinerant preacher. This could be someone who's a teacher. This is somebody who, in the church who has a teaching ministry. They would fall under this role. Then we have the evangelist. Now, an evangelist is someone who primarily preaches the gospel. They travel town to town preaching the gospel to those who never heard. They'd also be an apologist. That is, they would be making a defense of Scripture. Okay? And again, that's a ministry that's given to help build up the church. And then there's the pastor-teacher. Uh, the, the idea of the pastor-teacher, he usually functions as the bishop of the church, uh, but uh, there could be more than one pastor-teacher in the church, but there's at least one pastor-teacher in the church. And, uh, and what is his responsibility? To read, to teach, to preach the Word of God, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort others with the Word of God. 
Um, I like what Paul N. says about the pastor-teacher. As a pastor, he cares for the flock. He guides them, guards them, protects them, and provides for them. Uh, as a teacher, it sh- the, the, the emphasis is on the method how, by how, or by which, rather, he does his work. He guides, he guards, he protects by teaching. Again, the text we read here, verse 12 says, these gifts were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. In the missionaries, the evangelists, uh, the, 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 the preachers, the pastor teachers, they're not doing the work of the ministry. They're training you, sheep, to do the work of the ministry. That word equipping there, katartismos, uh, is again related to that term that means to mend or prepare a net. Vance Havner says this, Every Christian is commissioned. Every Christian is a missionary. It's been said the gospel is not merely something to come to church to hear, but something to go from the church to tell. And we are all appointed to tell it. Christianity began as a company of lay witnesses. It has become a professional pulpitism financed by lay spectators. Nowadays we hire church staff to do full-time Christian work, and we sit in church on Sunday to watch them do it. Every Christian is meant to be in full-time Christian service. There is indeed a special ministry of pastors, teachers, and evangelists, but for what? For the perfecting of the saints for their ministry. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, when we uh, equip and engage people for ministry, the body of Christ is going to be built up. There's going to be unity. There's going to be maturity. There's going to be conformity. Friends, so sad. So many Christians have been swept up into postmodernism and new morality. And this new morality has resulted in an imbalance between our doctrine and our deportment. I pray because there's many Christians that are falling into hypocrisy. And on the other hand, there are those that are following another Jesus that is not genuine. But the scripture is clear. We need to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We need to live a balanced life. And we need to strike the balance between our doctrine and deportment. We must commit ourselves to studying God's word and suffering for Christ. And once you strike that balance, I want to challenge you to continue to live in the word. I want to challenge you to... to, Confess pride, confess insensitivity, confess impatience, confess hate. I want you to to practice humility. I want you to practice gentleness. I want you to practice patience. I want you to practice love. And then, my friends, I want to challenge you to maintain that balance you achieve by making every effort to resolve conflict, by making every effort to persevere in reconciliation, to make every effort to focus on orthodoxy, and to make every effort to build up the body of Christ. And when we do that, when we follow the, the, the charges of Ephesians 4, we will walk worthy of our calling. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for the text of Ephesians 4. I thank you, Lord, for the challenge that it gives to all of us to examine ourselves, to make sure, Father, that we're balanced first and foremost. And that, Lord, we would set forth to begin by studying your word and be ready to suffer for your son. I pray, Lord, that we would reject these sins of selfishness and that, Father, we might strive to be humble and gentle and uh, loving and peaceable. That, Father, we will work to resolve conflict. Father, if there is conflict, show it to us that we can resolve it in a spirit of gentleness. That, Father, we would be prepared always and ready to forgive and to restore. That we would pursue that ministry of reconciliation. 
Father, give us a sound, solid foundation in your truth. Help us to fight for the truth. And Father God, I pray that you might help us to build up the body of Christ. We're not to build up programs. We're not to build up uh, methods. We're to build up the people. And so Father, help us to accomplish that. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.